What's up, Llama listeners? Joe here, and I'm excited to announce our partnership with Blazing Star Barbecue. Blazing Star Barbecue is a veteran-owned business owned and operated by Mike Starr, a veteran of over 20 years of military service and a fantastic member of the Llama family. Through his amazing rubs and sauces, Mike is devoted to bringing unique flavors from his world travels to your backyard. And I got to tell you, I love me some Blazing Star Barbecue, especially the Reaper and brand new Scorpion rubs. I absolutely put them on everything, and they pretty much have rendered the rest of my spice cabinet obsolete. Check them out at BlazingStarBarbecue.com and Blazing Star Barbecue on all social media platforms and get your sauces and rubs today. We promise you won't be disappointed. Live. Learning. Leadership. The Llama Lounge. Yo, welcome back to the Llama Lounge, a dialogue on all things life, learning, and leadership. This is Joe Bogdan, and I am absolutely stoked to have another amazing guest in the lounge with me today, G. Richard Shell. Richard is a global thought leader, the Thomas Garrity Professor and Senior Faculty Member of one of the world's leading business schools, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He serves as a chair of Wharton's Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department, the largest department of its kind in the world. He is also a course developer and a published and celebrated author and his latest book, The Conscious Code, is a magnificent piece of art. Thank you for visiting the lounge, Richard. How are you? Joe, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great, great honor to be in your lounge show. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, I'm super grateful. I know when uh, Scott Mason connected us, I immediately looked you up and I was thinking, man, I love some of the stuff that you're doing. You're uh, you're kind of a hero of mine just through distance, looking at what you do and it's kind of what I want to do. And um, hearing your story, it's just been amazing. And I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Great. No, I appreciate it. So, um, Whenever we have a guest at Lounge for the first time, we ask them to share their story because we often find that we can glean some wisdom from other people's stories. So we'd love you to share. Um, how did Richard Shell become the man he is today? <laughs> that's a that's a that's a long story. I'll try to keep it short for your uh, for the, here in the lounge. So so I'm a senior member of the faculty at the Wharton School, and so um, you know I but I took a very non traditional route to get here. Mm. Um, I mean, a business school like Wharton is a very academic place. I'm not a particularly academic person. Mm. Um, and so, and I really am a teacher. My, my vocation is teaching. And in a place like Wharton, most, most of the professors think of themselves mostly as scholars. Mm. So I've written five books, each of which has been about a course I've taught. Most wow. most of my colleagues write do research and then write books about their research. So I'm really kind of a non-traditional guy. So mm. so the way I got here was very indirect. So I'm I'm uh, the Vietnam War generation of uh, of, you know, I'm a boomer mm. and uh, my dad was a general in the United States Marine Corps. Mm. So I grew up all over the world following my dad around. Uh, he was uh, Dwight Eisenhower's aide in Paris, uh, in shape, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. He was in the Truman White House for the Marine Corps. Uh, and he became the commanding general of Paris Island uh, Recruit Depot. Wow. Uh, and 
so I was destined to be in the military. My grandfather's on both sides were military. You know, the military is a family business, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it was really just would I go to Annapolis or West Point or, mm-hmm. you know, what? Um, he retired from the Marines and went to be the president of VMI, the Virginia Military Institute, which is where he went to college. So we actually exited the Marines and went into a, this rural Virginia community. Mm-hmm. And and then I went off to college on a Navy ROTC scholarship. So I was, I was uh, right on track. Uh, but I had negotiated with my family that I didn't have to be at one of the academies. I got the scholarship so I could go wherever I got admitted under the scholarship. But fate would have it that during my college years, the Vietnam War escalated. Uh, we invaded Cambodia. The whole cultural understanding of the Vietnam War completely did a 180. Uh, and unlike the Afghan War, which we just concluded, um, and it took 20 years to come to the realization that we were kind of at the wrong place with the wrong mission in Vietnam that came to pass after about six years. Mm. And the culture was fully alarmed at what we were doing in Vietnam. And so here I was Navy ROTC full scholarship on the drill team in college, uh, you know, anchoring chain. I was in Norfolk, uh, chipping away at an anchor chain all <laughs> summer, my freshman year in college. And then all of a sudden I'm asked to, you know, like, wait a minute, what are we doing in Vietnam? Mm-hmm. And I'd never had occasion to think about what I was being called to do. Mm-hmm. I was just on the family business track. Mm-hmm. And when I came to actually have to confront that, I realized that I really wasn't willing to go to Vietnam and engage in that mission and kill Vietnamese people that I just didn't see we had a quarrel with and I didn't see that our war was legitimate and I I just turned the other way. So I became a war resistor in mm. college. And so you can imagine the sort of fracture that that would cause in a family. Mm. Now, I subsequently have met young men and women who've, are in the military and his parents were pacifists and, you know, and they had to break from their families to actually go into the military and find their vocation there. So I think it's really a question of fate and timing is more more than it is that there's some right or wrong answer that's, you know, like in the stars. Mm -hmm. But my situation was um, I had to run against my whole family tradition and, uh, and I, and as a consequence, I became a conscientious objector, a mm. pacifist. I broke with my family. I stopped speaking with them. I, oh. uh, I was, um, I was, I was completely lost. Uh, you know, mm. when you break with your family in that way, it's very difficult uh, yeah. to know who you are, where you're going, what's going on, and it was all I'd ever known. So, so. So I went through about six or seven years of lostness, and mm. I I traveled around the world. Uh, I worked as I traveled. I ended up in um, places that you could work, you know, places you could live for free. That was that was my mm. so my whole twenties was spent um, just backpacking. Mm. So I was living in kibbutzes in Israel, picking apples and. I was uh, in Buddhist monasteries in Sri Lanka and South Korea, 
uh, you know, you're you're in Korea now, and, yep. and I was actually in Songpongsa near Gwangju uh, studying Buddhist meditation. Wow. Uh, you know, not that far from where you are, uh, you know, stationed, and um, and you know, for me, it was just, um, uh, you know, I, I had this existential crisis, and it was really, who am I? Yeah. What do I need to do with my life? And then I didn't know it at the time, but the third question, I think that everyone has to answer besides who are you and what are you going to do with your life is who are you going to do it with? Because mm -hmm. no one goes through this journey alone. So it was actually in the monastery in Gwangju or just outside Gwangju that I confronted a career choice because the Buddhist master there, Kusan Sunim, who's a wonderful Zen master, um, I, I, I must have passed the like A levels for being a monk because he called me into his uh, his you know his 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 hut one day uh, and said we'd like you to stay if you'd like to stay you can become a monk mm. and you know I didn't much like kimchi and I, there were a few <laughs> things about the monastery that was not really right but it was a beautiful place and. Mm. But it was a career decision, you know. It was it yeah. was the most bizarre career decision for someone <laughs> who grew up in the military to ever have. I, I was either gonna, like, you know, he'd asked me to make this my vocation to study Zen Buddhism for my life, and I realized at that point that I had not resolved my family issues. Mm, mm -hmm. They were still there back in the U.S., living in Lexington, Virginia, and I was out here in the middle of the mountains of South Korea. And I couldn't, I couldn't make a decision without reconciling who I was with them. Mm -hmm. So I told them that I couldn't uh, join the monastery at that time. I had to go back and sort my family out. So I, I, I you know, finally went back home. Uh, my father was retired by then. I showed up at the door, and my family welcomed me. My mother and dad welcomed me home. I was like the prodigal son. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I lived in their basement for two years as a 27, 28 year old. Um, and I'd left a general and his wife, cause that's kind of the way I thought about my dad and my mom. Mm -hmm. And I, for those two years, very precious years for me, I got to know a mom and a dad. Wow. And, um, so, so, so that sort of healed me. Hmm. And they and I, you know, my dad and I kind of reconciled about the whole war thing. Mm -hmm. And he, he was a decorated veteran. He had a, a Legion of Merit with a combat V. He was mm -hmm. been a war hero in World War II. And, um, and I, think, I think in the end, we agreed that um, we would just, I became a pacifist. He decided that I was actually right about the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh, I decided he was right about war in general hmm. and, um, and that there were wars that I could imagine having justification that I didn't see in the one that I was confronted with. So, hmm. so we sort of pulled it together and then, you know, I, I, um, I decided I couldn't live in their basement forever. So I was selling insulation door to door in Rockbridge County, Virginia, um, and uh, doing odd jobs. But I decided, you know, I was good with words. I went to law school. And then in law school, I discovered that I was actually born to be a teacher. Yeah. And, and I, I just, 
I just had this electrifying experience in my first year in law school, uh, just just watching a master teacher at work in front of 150 law students. And I just went, wow, this guy, I want to be this guy. I want to be this guy. I want to have this kind of um, role in life. And so after that, it was like, how do I get to be there? Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, I did everything you have to do in law school to get the credentials to be a law professor. I went and clerked for a court in, in Boston, a federal court of appeals, to, because that's a credential. And, and then I worked, worked for a law firm in Boston because a little practical experience was part of the drill. And then I went into the law teaching market and I had offers at different places. And the Wharton School offered me a job. And honestly, the Wharton School is kind of famous, but I'd never heard of it. Hmm. And uh, and so I got this job offer and I came home. I also had offers at some law schools in Cleveland, also in Philadelphia. And I came home to my wife. Now, this is the third leg of the stool. Who are you mm-hmm. going to do it? Mm-hmm. And I had been so lucky that when I came back from all this traveling, I reconnected with a woman I'd met in college and we got married. Uh, and so I had a partner to consult with. And I, and I came back to her and I said, what do you think? You know, Wharton school, you ever heard of it? She said, my brother went to Wharton. What do you mean? Have I heard of it? Of course. I've heard. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I have a job offer from here. And then said, are, are you crazy? You have to take the job at Wharton, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with her uh, good sense, I took the job at Wharton and I've been there ever since. And, and, and I found my vocation as a teacher in this context at a business school. It's a kind of weird place for a lawyer to be, but we have Mm -hmm. a very large group of legal scholars and ethics scholars at Wharton. And um, so we're like this little uh, department of norms and rules Mm -hmm. in this sea of social (laughs) science that Wharton is. And, um, And it's just been a privilege to be part of this and to be able to teach undergraduates to teach MBA students, to teach executives, to teach PhD students. So I've just been, um, and, and every book I've written, as I mentioned, has been mm-hmm. about a course I've created. So mm-hmm. it's not just that I came here and taught a bunch of courses. Someone said, here, teach this. I've actually had the opportunity to, t- to create the courses that I teach and then to write the books based on the courses and what the students have taught me. So, so this last book, The Conscience Code, um, is about a course called Responsibility, which I teach for leadership, the mm. part of the leadership curriculum at Wharton. And it's really about how to be the right kind of person in a yeah. leadership role. And uh, and I've been the chair of a department. I've been the heads. I've, I've redesigned the MBA curriculum as the chairman of a committee that did that uh, most recently. So I'm a senior person now at the school, and, I, yeah. and they've entrusted me with that kind of work. And so I do know something about leadership now that I didn't know when I started. Wow. That, that's an amazing story. And I mean, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, so I had a question. So when did you determine that teaching was your calling? What, what, how old were you about around that time? Oh, I was, I was, I mean, let, let's put it this way. When I was traveling, mm-hmm. I kept a diary. Okay. And, and, and I kept a diary very religiously every day. Yeah. I'd write something in the diary mm-hmm. and I was consumed with the question, what am I going to do with my life? That was right. my, 
That was my koan. That was what my my mystery. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I, I have all these diaries. They're like you know stacks of in my in my uh, in my closet still. <laughs> uh, and um, I sent them. I sent. Them, I mailed them home like on on freighters. You know, yeah. I didn't have any money. <laughs> but but my wife to be was my recipient. So she mm-hmm. was reading all these diaries while I was overseas trying to figure this out. And at one point, I wrote a list on a whole page of this diary, things I could do, things I could mm-hmm. never do. Mm-hmm. And the things I could do were teach English. I majored in English when I was mm-hmm. in college. I have a brother-in-law taught Shakespeare. I could be a carpenter. I could be, a, <laughs> I actually thought it might be a minister at one point. Oh, wow. um, and and then things I could never do, the number one thing, the number one thing uh-huh. on the list of things I could never do was teach at a business school. <laughs> <laughs> number one. <laughs> and so that just goes to show, you know, a lot of a lot of six books on success talk about mm-hmm. goal setting and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it. And I think there's a lot more fate and luck involved mm. than people realize that mm-hmm. that. You know, I think it's more about following your talents mm-hmm. and letting you become self-aware of what you're better than most at doing. Yeah. And then following that as a as a path, as opposed to I'm going to be a you know what. And then yeah. you beat your head against the wall trying to be a you know what. And you wonder why the world's not like yielding to your to your effort. I I think it's more introspection and yeah. just like, who am I? What do I do well? And and when I look back on it, I had taught over the years before I even knew what was going on. I had been uh, teaching in a daycare center, mm. in a kindergarten. Uh, when I was a social worker, after that, I taught poor people, but family, you know, children of mm. prostitutes and really impoverished people in Washington, D.C. And I, I was one of the people who taught them, their kids, their, their three-year-olds and two-year-olds uh, in a daycare program. I had taught in college in a sixth grade program as a student teacher. Uh, and, uh, and, and then, you know, I came around after all this work and I kind of saw this law school thing and I went, wow. Oh, oh and I'd also taught at Brandeis when I was a lawyer as an undergrad teacher, as a lecturer in a legal studies program when I was a lawyer. And so, so this, this law school experience was like, um, you know, it all came together. Now, one other thing, Joe, you're Mm -hmm. indulging me, but I have to tell you that I also, during this traveling and and introspection period, I was an actor. I was an oh. improvisational actor. I traveled <laughs> all over the United States in a school bus with a group called the People's Revolutionary Road Company. And I, in 1976, during the bicentennial, and I played guitar, slide whistle, and a bunch of other things with a group. And we played in churches and union halls. And, and we put on this improvisational show about American history. And so I was a performer. And... Mm-hmm. So, so when you think about it, mm-hmm. I, I love knowledge. I love um, knowing more than other people in the room, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like being an expert. I love to perform. I love to be in front of people and to bring smiles to their faces and to engage. And 
and and there I was in this law school classroom. I saw this guy doing all this at the same time, wow. and 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 having all of us on the edge of our seats. And mm-hmm. I went, "That's it, you know. That's it. I just need to find out how to get there in the front of that room." So so the vocation part was a. There were signals that mm-hmm. I hadn't put together, but then when I finally got it, I went, oh, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and honestly, you know, when you're doing the right work, I think because when you, like I teach three hour classes at work mm-hmm. twice a week, you know, one, one class meets for three hours at a pop. Okay. And I am more energized at the mm-hmm. end of a three hour class than I was when I started it. Yeah. And that's a sign that right. you're doing the right, that's a sign you're doing the right thing. You're in a kind of flow. Yeah. And, yeah. and I have a list of students that I've taught that I keep in contact with. It's on my email list. And it's, it's so long that I can't keep it open because <laughs> uh, they are always recontacting me and, and kind of, you know, what, well, Professor Hill, could we have a chat? And, you know, right. just, you know, I've connected with them. And, you know, it's so, you know, it, it happened in law school, but then when it happened, I kind of went this, this sort of memory thing happened and I went all the way back and I went, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, and the reason why I even asked you that, cause everything you just, you know, everything you just covered to me, it's about meaning. Right. And, um, yeah. I think, and it really just reminded me when you're telling your story, reminded me, um, of a Victor uh, Frankel quote, the meaning of our yeah. existence is not invented by ourselves, but rather detected. And, yeah. and I think about that quite often. Cause I think when I was younger and uh, made less mature, I thought that, you know, I had to create all of this, but in reality, it's, you know, I- I'm just trying to find out who I really am, <laughs> you know, and yeah. just start seeing the world through adult eyes and, and you found it. And I think the, re- the reason why I asked you, um, roughly how old you were when you kind of figure that out is because I think it's important that we find our meaning in our path. But I think some people feel like they have all this extra pressure to find it early on in their life. And, you know, and they put all this and and actually starts pushing it away a lot more. And I think your story is a great inspiration because it took you a while and you went on all over the world. I I didn't start. (laughs) I didn't start as an assistant professor, which is lowest rung Uh in my profession until I was 37. Wow. Yeah. That, that was the beginning of my yeah. career, 37. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I, I'm a big believer, get it right. Don't worry mm-hmm. about getting it soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. That, that is awesome. <laughs> that is amazing. So, and, and Frankel, Frankel is someone that I teach. You oh, know, awesome. I mean, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I think I resonate a lot with his insights about meaning. And, and, and I'll just throw out one other thing about meaning, because you raise the word, because mm-hmm. this is something I discovered as a result of the work that I've done at Warden. One of the most important things people can find is meaningful work. Yeah. I used to think that meaningful work was defined by the work. Mm. Like ministers have meaningful work. Mm-hmm. or chefs have meaningful work, or uh, police have meaningful work. Actually, it's not the work. It's the people that do it. Mm. You bring the meaning to the work. Mm. And so you could have two janitors in a hospital, and one of them is working at one end of the same hall as the other. Mm-hmm. And the one at one end of the hall has meaningful work because their child was treated on that floor they feel like they're contributing to the team that's making it possible for other children to be healed. And every time they clean a room, 
they see that they're doing something that's being part of a bigger story of what mm -hmm. is going on in that hospital. And the other one at the other end of the hall doing exactly the same work is uh, an alcoholic who hates mm -hmm. her job mm -hmm. because for them, it's just a paycheck. They feel defeated and they think they should have deserved more in life. And they, and they are, um, they're depressed about what they do. And mm. so it's not the work. It's yeah. the people, it's what you bring to the work. So I want to ask you, I wanted to go down that path for a second. What do you think is um, the leader's role in that? Meaning, because, um, you know, being a leader in, in a large unit with an organization that has 400, 500, 600 people at times, um, you hear a lot of things like, um, oh, I'm not satisfied. I don't have job satisfaction or I don't feel value in what I'm doing and, you know, et cetera. And kind of describing that the janitor that's not finding meaning in their work. Right. What do you what do you think is like the leader's role in trying to provide that environment? Because in my idea, I can't provide you job satisfaction. I could create an environment for you, but I can't give it to you. That's something that you kind of got to seek on your own. But I was just wondering what your thoughts were. I, I think, I think the leader's role and cause I confront this myself. Mm -hmm. I I'm a, I'm a chairman. All right. I, until very recently I was chairman of a department. Mm -hmm. Uh I have faculty coming in, you know, who do different things and I'm trying to help and coach them to have meaningful work the same mm -hmm. as I have. I think the most important thing for a leader to do is to acknowledge that different people have different stories mm -hmm. and different goals and different mm -hmm. families and different cultures and different, all that stuff. And then to put yourself at their service mm -hmm. and say, you know, I, I need one thing from you. I need you to do your job. Right. Because my job is to get this problem solved or this task done. Uh, in return for that, I want to help you find the best in yourself. Hmm. And maybe the best in yourself is in this job yeah. or in the track that you're on, or maybe it's on some other track. Uh, and I want to share with you my journey and how I've come to be where I am and where I hope I'm going. Hmm. And I want to hear from you what your goals are and where you think you're going. And I want to do everything I can to make your life the most meaningful, productive, um, satisfying and fulfilling life you could have on the planet. Cause we only get a few days on the planet comparatively mm -hmm. speaking. And as your leader, I want to be helpful. Yeah. Uh, and in return for that, and some of them are going to want to be you, you know, they're going to want to mm -hmm. follow your track, whatever it is, and they're going to find meaning in the work that you're already doing. And that's great. You, you know, you're going to have that energy and that's a core, like mm -hmm. a, a nuclear power energy plant that you can mm -hmm. work with. But the people that aren't all that engaged, you, you want to say, look, I get it. You know, I've done stuff in my life. I wasn't engaged by, mm -hmm. I, I want to help you find the place where you are engaged yeah. And so you're going to, you're going to have to help me help you. Uh, but in return for that, I want, I need you to do what we've been tasked to do. And that means to give your best every day to do things right. Wow. Uh, and, and, uh, and then sell them on that exchange. Mm -hmm. Oh, Richard, you just like probably gave people in the military specifically a code, like a cheat code to build, to, uh, to motivate and inspire their people. Because for us, um, 
oftentimes you joined the military and specifically the air force, you join a career field, you know, you get, you have an air force specialty that you come, maybe you're a, a cook, maybe you're a, a generator mechanic like I was or whatever else it might be. And oftentimes that's not necessarily the job that you find value in. You might love right. the service, but you don't necessarily right. love that. Or maybe you're just going to, you're joining the military for, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a means to an end that you, you know, sure. you want to see your school paid for or whatever. But at that moment, you know, a lot of times leaders get so focused in this myopic view of, no, you, you should want to do what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's like the wrong path to go. No, no. I mean, one of the things I learned in the research I've done on this, because I teach a course on success at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I know what success is and I mm-hmm. teach them so they'll know what success is. It's a course on how do you define success for yourself? Yes. And, and one of the things about work as specifically, because success is not just about work. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about the work part of success is that there are three kinds of work. There's jobs, there's careers, and then there's vocations. Yeah. And, you know, I think I've had jobs. I've been a waiter uh, in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I had to dress up in a colonial outfit with silly knee bridges. And uh, <laughs> I've been a house painter and a bricklayer and uh, insulation door-to-door salesperson. Mm. I've done a lot of work, you know, that's just a job. I was earning money to keep my self-respect and to pay, you know, bills. The career, and that's what you have. Mm-hmm. You're a, equivalent of a master chief, mm-hmm. you know, the highest level of enlisted in the military, and you're the pinnacle of the career for the track you're on. And so you must have gotten some intrinsic motivation and satisfaction out of that work to get you to stay in it, to be at this level. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from having a career. And I have a career. I'm mm-hmm. a, I, 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 I was an assistant, then I was an associate professor, a full professor. You know, mm-hmm. Those are a little wrong, just like different ranks. But then vocation is what you do that energizes you mm-hmm. about your career. Right. Uh, and not all parts of my career are happy moments. You know, I have to yeah. run meetings and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the vocation part is like, okay, I found the thing that I just, I'm vibrating when I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Now, recognize it may be the thing that you vibrate when you're doing is logistics. Mm. It may be getting the train to run mm-hmm. on time. It may be organizing stuff so the closet's clean. You know, it may be uh, getting that spark out of somebody who's demotivated and seeing them motivated. Mm. And now they, they get that light turns on and now they, they're like, you know, like all in where before they were like half out. Whatever it is, that's the introspection part. You have to go, what is it that I do? that gives me that vibration that I'm yeah. doing what I ought to be doing. And that's the vocation part. And then mm-hmm. my, my thought, my theory is maximize vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe you have to change careers. Maybe you have to change jobs. Um, maybe you get your vocational work at, in your co- spiritual community. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you're earning a living and then the vocations outside your, yeah. your money. But, but, but vocation is worth seeking. Wow. I've, you know, I've thought and even said 
the the concept of what you just talked about, but I never was able to put it so eloquently. And I think that so true um, for me, like, yeah, this is a career and I will eventually take my uniform off, but my vocation is teaching. I love teaching and I can do it in uniform, <laughs> um, coaching, yep. mentorship, um, teaching courses. And when I'm out of uniform, I'll still be able to continue to do that. And I think Absolutely. that's so important. And it does, you know, my inner core vibrates when I get to do what I love to do. And I feel energized, just like what you had mentioned earlier. Yeah. You know, even for me, even for me, I'm at a stage in my career where I'm, I'm looking at retirement mm-hmm. and, you know, I started late, so I'm going to end, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but my search at this stage of my life is how can I continue that vocation? Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not a full-time member of a faculty at the Wharton School of Business, which is pretty convenient. You know, they deliver really talented people for me to mm-hmm. teach. Uh, I don't have to do anything. They do all that. <laughs> uh, so now my job is thinking, okay, how can I find them? How can I put myself in service of people yeah. that will allow me to continue to get that vibration of feeling that I'm doing what I should be doing. And, and so I have to be a little more proactive. So, so, you know, it's a, it's a question of effort uh, and intention. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a question of being uh, grateful and aware of when you're teaching, you could be teaching in, in a moment that isn't a teaching moment, mm-hmm. but you could be teaching uh, it could be with your child. It could be with uh, a colleague or it could be with another citizen mm-hmm. who is experiencing some difficulty or trauma in a place where you help can help them and you teach them things that will help them manage that. And, and so, you know, I think it's a question of recognizing uh, also the moments and be grateful the moments when you get to do what you ought to be doing. Yeah, Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> I love this conversation. And, you know, I knew it wasn't even where we were originally going to go in this direction. Well, it all, fits so together. it all fits together. <laughs> Absolutely. It does. It really does. And I think that because um, because I want to transition to the topic of ethics. And I do believe that it all ties together because we're talking about motivation and inspiring. And I've discovered, you know, through my experiences, when there's a lack of ethics within a leadership team or with an organization, the, the people of the organization often are demotivated and Absolutely. left uninspired. And that could, for in my line of business, that could be uh, detrimental to lives. Um, Absolutely. So I'd love to get your perspective. You know, how do you define ethics and how do they play? You know, how does that play into an organization? Sure. Well, the first thing I would recommend is forget the word ethics. Mm. Because ethics, you say the word ethics, everybody goes to sleep or wants <laughs> to jump out the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because it sounds like you've got some sort of agenda and you know what the good thing is and everybody else is going to have to get with the program. And mm-hmm. and that's not what I think we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I think we're talking about values. Yeah. And values are something everybody has. Uh, it could be values for family. It could be values for excellence. It could be values for patriotism. It could be values for life. Uh, and I think when you're standing for your values, mm. you're behaving in a way that's comporting with your ethics. That's that. So that would be the first thing that I would say. I think in addition to that, as a leader, mm-hmm. you have to recognize um, that one of your principal jobs is to get people to feel good about themselves mm. in a constructive way. Yeah. And the research shows that there are two foundations for people feeling good about themselves, having what psychologists call self-efficacy or Mm self-esteem. 
Because mm-hmm. that's when people operate at the highest level is when they're feeling self-confident. Mm. And 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 justifiably so. They haven't taken a drug to feel self-confident. You know, they're feeling self-confident. Mm-hmm. The two foundations of self-confidence are one, a sense of competence, mm-hmm. that the work you can do is something you can do, and it may be challenging, and you may have to like trial and error, learn and fail, learn and fail, learn and succeed, but competence. And the other is your moral identity, that you think you're a good person. Hmm. And if either one of those suffers, then you're going to lose productivity. If people lose their sense of competence because they're being sabotaged or they're being undercut or people are undoing everything they do or they're not trained well, so they they are failing, but it's because no one's told them how to do it Hmm. uh, the right way, uh, then they're going to lose their motivation. Hmm. They'll still think they're a good person and they'll blame everybody else for the fact that they're not competent. But you can be incredibly competent and be asked to do something that's immoral, unethical, that violates your basic values. And you will equally lose your motivation Hmm. because you'll no longer be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, whatever else, I'm at least a good person because you have the demonstration proof that you just lied or cheated or injured someone or caused injury needlessly um, or behaved in a way that violated norms of justice in ways that you feel are, you know, uh, immoral and under your beliefs. Mm. And so I think as a leader, what you want to do is you want to take every opportunity to both reinforce people's sense of confidence and competence Mm. so that you've given them the tools to do the job that you're asking them to do so that they do it and they do it with pride because Mm. they've done it well. And you have to model being a good person Mm. so that when there is a conflict between getting it done on time and getting it done in a morally correct way, you sacrifice getting it done on time in order to get it done in a morally correct way so that their basis in their moral identity is confirmed. And they see that you've made that trade-off and they go, mm-hmm. well, you know, Joe, we were late, but Joe insisted that we do this in a way that had integrity. Mm-hmm. And so we respect Joe and we respect ourselves yeah. because Joe modeled that. So I think the leader's job is to manage those two um, anchors of self-esteem, mm-hmm. competence, and sort of moral identity, and make sure that those two are job one. Yeah, uh, and and allow and support and facilitate everyone under you to continue to have those two foundations for themselves. And that means that if they think that there's something going on that's wrong, you have to open yourself to hearing them saying, you know. Uh, lieutenant or master team, yeah. I think this is wrong. Yeah. And and you think they're crazy. You know, there's nothing wrong with this. You have to listen to them and hear them out and find out from their point of view why their values are at stake here. And then see if you can figure out a way to frame it for them or mm-hmm. to reorient how you're doing it so their values are made consistent uh, or explain at least how you're thinking about it so that you're comfortable with it as a matter of values, so that you've led them. Uh, So I think that's where the values part comes in. Mm. It's really 
not about ethics. I think it's about values. Mm. And values, you know, I, I have an acronym for the values that matter, CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, CRAFT. You know, C for compassion. Mm. That means you care about others' well-being. You know, I mean, in, in the military, you may have to order people to go and put their life in limit risk, um, mm. die for their country, but that doesn't mean you put them at needless risk. Right. So, and you look out for the well-being of them, their families, their children. Um, our responsibility, you're willing to step up and hold people responsible for what they're supposed to do and call them to account hmm. if they uh, come short. Um, you know, A is the accountability part. So that's, 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 that's the sort of actionable responsibility part where a leader says, you've fallen short. We have to figure out how to get you back up to, to, to the standard. Um, F is for fairness, justice. You know, people feel that they're not being treated alike and they're like people, uh, you know, that eats at them and they are going to resent it and they're going to feel uh, that, um, that they need to resist it and, um, and they're going to be angry about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so norms of fairness and justice, critical. And then T is for truth. You really have to help them see that you're transparent, that when you speak, you speak words that they can rely on, uh, that you don't lie to them. Sometimes you can't tell them everything, but at least mm -hmm. you tell them that you can't tell them. Right. And so they trust you. Yeah. Uh, so th those values, those craft values, I call it the craft of ethics. Mm. Uh, those, if you can figure out how to keep those solid, I think you're 90% of the way home in terms of being an effective leader on the value side of the ledger. Yeah, you know, I think that's amazing. And I think that um, the, the the problem that I see a lot of times, um, especially when, because we're in an environment of scarcity. I mean, there's just yeah. not enough resources, right? So then politics right. comes into play and everything else. Yeah. And I think um, what I've seen a lot, especially for young leaders and and you know, senior leaders alike, is that a lot of times those values are personal values. They're, they end up in conflict with one another. So we're at like, a, we're having a, I guess, a quote unquote ethical dilemma because our own values are in conflict with each other because we're facing um, a decision here. Uh, how, how would you um, advise someone to be able to navigate through that yep. dilemma? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, 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 uh, that's, uh, it, it would be simple, right? If all we did is follow our values, yeah. then we have two values. I'll tell you the most frequent conflict between values, especially in the military, mm -hmm. is on the one hand, you have loyalty mm -hmm. to your team or mm -hmm. to your command or to your unit. And mm -hmm. on the other, you have some act or, or, or dilemma mm -hmm. that is calling you to do something you know to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, so, so it feels awful to be mm -hmm. in a conflict between your own values. I have three, actually four places to land on this. So, <laughs> so um, I call it CLIP, C-L-I-P. Uh, and none of this makes it easy just because you can say it. Right. But it does give you the right places to land when you're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So number one, you got a conflict between values, weigh the consequences, C, mm -hmm. of taking one path or the other. Uh, the consequences to yourself, consequences to the team, consequences to the nation, whatever it is. Uh, and that's kind of a cost benefit analysis of mm -hmm. like, you know, what are the, what, 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 what's going to happen at the end of this? Who's going to suffer? 
Uh, number two, loyalty. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I have these loyalties and I have to acknowledge those and I have to weigh them. And if I violate a loyalty, uh, you know, there's a cost to that hmm. that is different in kind than just injury or not injury. You know, there's a relationship at stake. There's uh, things that, uh, that we have to worry about. And honestly, you know, interestingly, loyalty is an ascent is, is as a matter of, of, of philosophical value. It's mm -hmm. much more Asian than it is Western. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so I think different people with different cultures may weigh the loyalty value slightly differently, mm -hmm. um, but it's important to weigh. So then there's loyalty. Then I CLI, I is identity. Who am I if I do this this way? Who am I if I do it that way? Because after you've acted, that's the person you are. Hmm. I, there's a wonderful quote from a novelist. He said, how do I know who I am till I see what I do? Wow. And, and so you have to recognize that when, once you've made a decision, you're the person that acted that way. And that's going to be who the rest of the world thinks you are because you did it. And can you live with that? That's, you know, that's a, you know, Joe Darby, who was the guy who blew the whistle on Abu Ghraib mm -hmm. in Iraq. Mm -hmm. um, he, he basically had this confrontation with himself because he got this CD that had all his buddies torturing Iraqi prisoners of war. And it was by accident. You know, he was trying mm -hmm. to mail some pictures home and his buddy gave him a CD to put his pictures on. He opened the CD and here's all these pictures yeah. of people committing war crimes. And, and, and they were his buddies. So what's he going to do? And he spent three days torturing himself hmm. over what to do nothing, you know. And at the end of those three days, he said, I had no choice. I couldn't live with myself mm -hmm. if I didn't report this. And so that's the identity part. It, it weighed up against loyalty. The consequences were severe for him mm -hmm. and for them. But the moral identity problem he would face if he hadn't reported it is he'd be complicit with a war crime and he just couldn't see himself doing that. And then finally, CLIP principles. What are some principles that you may have that you just are non-negotiable about? Maybe one of your principles is um, never tell a lie. Maybe one of your principles is uh, country first. Uh, uh, whatever they are, Everybody has a, a set of small set of non-negotiable principles or family first. Then you have to weigh the principles and whether you're going to violate one that you think is non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. And then, then you've got these four things. It's like you're cooking them in a stew. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you've done a good job of just considering them, then, you know, when people who are religious, I'm, I'm religious, but I'm not, I'm spiritual, but I'm not especially religious. I don't mm -hmm. have a religion, but I think when people speak of God, you know, praying on it mm -hmm. or, or listening for God's guidance, I think what they're really, from my point of view saying is they've cooked on this decision in a very articulate and, and earnest and intentional way. And then their subconscious tells them what they have to do. Mm. And there's this sort of message that comes up that says, you, you know, there's really only one path here and mm -hmm. you don't like it. You know, it may not be the most comfortable one, but mm -hmm. it's what you realize you have to do because that's who you are. Yeah. And so I think when the values conflict, that's what you have to do. Yeah.
And, and I like what you said, because it's not necessarily easy. I mean, it might be oh. simple. You could break it down into, you know, an acronym and, and walk through it. But I think there is just so much value in having an ethical framework of sort to be able to navigate through these issues. Because if you don't even think about it, and you don't develop your own framework to be able to, what questions are you going to ask yourself when you face it? You're, you can oftentimes downward spiral or you can even like uh, just paralyze because you don't make a decision yeah. at all, which is like is the worst thing you could do as a leader. Yeah, you, you, you withdraw from it. You know, mm-hmm. you just go, I just can't compute. You know, it's yeah. not my pay grade. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody else tell me what to do. I mean, right. there, there's a wonderful story of the Navy SEALs out in Afghanistan uh, and the, the story of the guy with the goats. Uh, mm. uh, it, uh, it, it was made into a movie. Uh, but, the, uh, but these four SEALs were out there and uh, they were on a mission. And this Afghan uh, a couple of, of uh, herders showed up with some goats mm-hmm. and they had to decide what to do with herders because they compromised the mission. You know, if mm. they let the herders go, then they would tell mm. the Taliban and mm-hmm. they were, you know, in big trouble. They, they tried to call to get some advice. The mm-hmm. radio was down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are these four seals. And one of them said, well, I'm a Christian. I can't mm-hmm. kill the herders. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so, just something I can't do. And someone else said, well, cost benefit analysis, we have to kill them because if mm-hmm. we don't kill them. We're all going to be dead and mission right. compromised. Somebody else said, well, you know, I just can't, you know, it's just not what I signed up to do in the military was to kill innocent yeah. Afghan herders out in the middle of the nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I just can't see who I'd be if I did that. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then the final one, the fourth one said, um, I don't know what to do. You guys decide, take a vote. I'll do whatever you say. Right. And, and I think each of the first three had a principle they were working on. One Uh, was Christian principles. uh, One was kind of cost benefit analysis. One was identity, but the last guy surrendered himself. Mm -hmm. And he's the one I disrespect. Mm. Now, as it all worked out, they let, they, they voted and they let the mm-hmm. herders go. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, they, they were attacked by the Taliban and, yep. uh, and they, and 23 yeah. uh, additional people died mm-hmm. uh, trying to rescue them. And uh, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, one guy survived and he wrote the lone survivor of the book. Yep. Yep. Uh, but, but I think that, um, that moral decisions like that, don't have right and wrong answers. They have right. situations, pressures, and they all they do is they call us to think about it as best we can. Yeah, I think you just described leadership in a nutshell there because I know that uh, for when I was younger, problems were pretty simple. It was like, okay, here's the problem. Here's the right answer. Fix it. Now, the only ones that bubble up to me are ones that never have a simple, and it's like maybe three or four major problems a week that we have to go through this framework because there's not a right wrong. There's typically just a less bad, you know? Yeah. And, and I love that you brought that example up because I bring that up in my um, uh, ethical leadership discussions and professional development seminars, because that lone survivor scenario is perfect because people can even go back and be like, well, they were right. If they would have killed them because of the result, I was like, well, what's your, <laughs> what's your yeah. view is, are you a consequentialist? Yeah. Like, that's what you're looking yeah. at. It's like, who result. are you? Right. Who are you? If that's what you are, are, making all your decisions on mm-hmm. and, and you know i think i think it's uh, uh my dad i once asked my dad um after we got you know reconciled and i you know he'd been a you know a decorated war leader the president mm-hmm. of a college and i said who's your role model as mm-hmm. a leader mm-hmm. 
you know, and I I'd sort of become a leader myself. And I wanted to know like George Marshall, you know, wow. uh, and um, he said, there are no world models. Everyone mm. has to find their own way. Mm. And I think, um, and he actually knew George Marshall. He worked for Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, this, this, is, this is a guy who could have had lots of role models, but he, and, and I'm sure they all affected him in some way, but he realized fundamentally the responsibility of a leader is mm. to own their leadership yeah, and, and to be the leader who they are and to, and to be able to bring an authentic struggle to yeah. the questions that come and to re- wrestle with them and to show that they're wrestling. I think people appreciate when leaders make decisions that are difficult and they show that they're difficult. You know, there's mm-hmm. nobody says it has to be like decisive and, right. you know, you're always self-confident and you're always like the guy who knows the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think so. I think people appreciate when you're able to say, this is a really, really tough struggle. This mm-hmm. is my best solution. I'm committed to it. I want you to follow me. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing. Richard, I'm so grateful that you came on and this conversation really filled my cup. It really did. I loved having this conversation and I'd love for you to um, be able to tell us a little bit about your latest book, The Conscience Code. Can you tell us about a little synopsis of it and how we can find it? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, The Conscience Code is based on my responsibility course Mm -hmm. uh, at Warden, and it is really a manual for people who face values conflicts on how to stand up for their values and um, and do it effectively. That is, you know, speak up, but not lose your job (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and do it uh, in a way that will um, advance their career as opposed to sacrifice their career. Mm. And, um, and, and it brings everything I've learned about negotiation, persuasion, values, identity, success, everything into this, uh, capsule that is the conscience code. And, um, so, you know, I, it, it can be found anywhere books are sold, Amazon. I have a website, grichardshell.com, and, and people can learn more about me and about The Conscience Code and the other books that I've written uh, on that website. Um, and, you know, I recommend it in, 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 a, in a way, you know, values conflicts are not things we seek. Mm-hmm. And most people are, are thinking, well, you know, I'll get to it if it gets to me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but, but actually it really pays to be prepared and to think through who you are with respect to this kind of conflict uh, before it happens. Mm. Uh, And that'll give you the courage and the confidence to stand up more and to think more and to be more anchored when these difficult problems come. Um, So I like to think of them as, sort of low probability, high consequence decisions that you mm-hmm. face as a leader. And, uh, and that's in that, if you know the, the Eisenhower box, you know, urgent, mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these decisions are in the not urgent, very important box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when they happen, they flip right into the most urgent, incredibly important box. Mm-hmm. But if, you don't, if you're not prepared, then you're going to be in deep trouble. Uh, so the conscience code is a way of preparing yourself uh, for thinking about these difficult values conflicts um, as a leader before they come and find you. Yeah, 
Love it. And for, for all of our listeners, I highly recommend you grabbing a copy because if you, you know, if you have any aspirations to be a leader, you will be facing those, <laughs> you will be facing those values conflicts. And, and like we had discussed and um, like Richard just brought up, you want to have some, something that you're anchored in before it happens. That way you're not just trying to catch up the whole time in reaction mode. So love it. Um, thank you so much for, for offering that. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Richard. Joe, it's a real privilege to be with you. And I, I really support your work, uh, your aspirations. And um, if I've been helpful at all to any of the people who are listening, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I really would love for you to come back on and talk even more about some of the topics we discussed, but also uh, some of your work that you've done uh, with the military, because you've done a ton that we didn't even touch on. And um, also, I I want to talk about Mr. Rogers with you because <laughs> I think that's the connection you and I have. And I'd love to talk, talk about that, talk about Mr. Rogers with you on another episode. Absolutely. I look forward to it, Joe. <laughs> awesome. So before we uh, let you go, uh, we always hit everybody with what we call the leadership rapid fire. It's a series of four questions. Um, however you want to interpret the question, however you want to answer them. Sound good. Okay. All sure. right. First question. What is your favorite leadership trait and why? Uh, I would say my favorite leadership trait is humility. Mm. Uh, and the reason is because you're never going to be a good leader unless you realize you can be wrong. Mm. And that causes you to question, to ask questions, to seek more input, uh, and, um, and to move forward with better information. That's awesome. All right. Next question. What is your favorite quote? Huh. Wow. Uh, <laughs> There are lots of things that are coming to my mind. Uh, I mean, I, I teach persuasion and influence mm -hmm. and negotiation. And one of my favorite quotes is, what convinces is conviction. Mm. And I think taking the time to believe in what you say will make you so much more effective as a leader, mm. um, as opposed to just saying something you think will sound good or saying someone someone told you to say. Uh, and uh, John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, once said, uh, one person with a belief is more powerful than 100 people who have merely their own interests. Mm. And mm. so what convinces is conviction gives you that sense of the power of beliefs when you're trying to convince other people. All right. All right. Third question. What is a book besides your book that you would recommend to an aspiring leader? There's so many. Mm -hmm. I, I'll just I'll just default to my favorite book of all time, and you probably had other guests who mentioned this, mm -hmm. is a book called Influence, The Psychology mm -hmm. of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini, mm -hmm. C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. -I. And they're just principles of influence and ethical influence. Mm -hmm. And the book itself is just it's a joy to read. It's full of wonderful stories. It's very convincing. It's based on science. And it really gives you a toolkit for being a persuasive executive. So influence, the psychology of persuasion. Do you know Brian Ahern by any chance? He's I've heard been, of him. Yeah. 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 He's been on the show before too. And I'm um, also uh, a big uh, advocate for that book. So it just, it just yeah. made me connect that right away. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So the final question. So uh, the Lama Lounge, we're all about life, learning, and leadership. So how do you find your harmony between life, learning, and leadership? <laughs> that's, that's too easy for me. Yeah. I live a life in which I am paid to help 
people learn mm. and I'm a leader in that environment. Yeah. So I have found the sweet spot where life learning and leadership are all what I do every day. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for coming on the show once again. And like I said, we, we got to have you back on again. Great. I look forward to it. All right. To all our listeners, um, shout out to our sponsor, um, Blazing Star Barbecue. Hit them up at blazingstarbarbecue.com. Mike Star, veteran-owned business. The flavors, the amazing flavors out there was rubs and sauces. Highly recommend you checking it out. And to all our listeners, Llama's out. Thanks for tuning in to the Llama Lounge podcast. Be sure to visit the homepage for links to products and services related to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. See you next time.